Chapter Two of the Economic Consequences of the Peace by John Maynard Keynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Graham Macmillan. Chapter Two: Europe Before the War. Before 1870, different parts of the small continent of Europe had specialized in their own products, but taken as a whole, it was substantially self-subsistent, and its population was adjusted to this state of affairs. After 1870, there was developed on a large scale an unprecedented situation and the economic condition of Europe became during the next fifty years unstable and peculiar. The pressure of population on food, which had already been balanced by the accessibility of supplies from America, became, for the first time in recorded history, definitely reversed. As numbers increased, food was actually easier to secure. Larger proportional returns from an increasing scale of production became true of agriculture as well as industry. With the growth of the European population, there were more emigrants on the one hand to till the soil of the new countries, and on the other, more workmen were available in Europe to prepare the industrial products and capital goods which were to maintain the emigrant populations in their new homes, and to build the railways and ships which were to make accessible to Europe food and raw products from distant sources. Up to about 1900, a unit of labor applied to industry yielded year by year a purchasing power over an increasing quantity of food. It is possible that about the year 1900 this process began to be reversed, and a diminishing yield of nature to man's effort was beginning to reassert itself. But the tendency of cereals to rise in real cost was balanced by other improvements, and, one of many novelties, the resources of tropical Africa then for the first time came into large employ, and a great traffic in oil seeds began to bring to the table of Europe in a new and cheaper form one of the essential foodstuffs of mankind. In this economic El Dorado, in this economic utopia, as the earlier economists would have deemed it, most of us were brought up. That happy age lost sight of a view of the world, which filled with deep-seated melancholy the founders of our political economy. Before the 18th century, mankind entertained no false hopes. To lay the illusions which grew popular at that age's latter end, Malthus disclosed a devil. For half a century all serious economical writings held that devil in clear prospect. For the next half century he was chained up and out of sight. Now perhaps we have loosed him again. What an extraordinary episode in the economic progress of man that age was which came to an end in August 1914. The greater part of the population, it is true, worked hard and lived at a low standard of comfort, yet were, to all appearances, reasonably contented with this lot. But escape was possible for any man of capacity or character at all exceeding the average into the middle and upper classes for whom life offered at a low cost and with the least trouble conveniences comforts and amenities beyond the compass of the richest and most powerful monarchs of other ages the inhabitant of london could order by telephone sipping his morning tea in bed the various products of the whole earth in such a quantity as he might see fit and reasonably expect their early delivery upon his doorstep he could, at the same moment and by the same means, adventure his wealth in the natural resources and new enterprises of any quarter of the world, and share, without exertion or even trouble, in their prospective fruits and advantages, or he could decide to couple the security of his fortunes with the good faith of the townspeople of any substantial municipality, in any continent that fancy or information might recommend. He could secure forthwith, if he wished it, cheap and comfortable means of transit to any country or climate, without passport or other formality, could dispatch his servant to the neighboring office of a bank for such supply of the precious metals as might seem convenient, 
and could then proceed abroad to foreign quarters, without knowledge of their religion, language, or customs, bearing coined wealth upon his person, and would consider himself greatly aggrieved and much surprised at the least interference. But most important of all, he regarded this state of affairs as normal, certain, and permanent, except in the direction of further improvement, and any deviation from it as aberrant, scandalous, and avoidable. The projects and politics of militarism and imperialism, of racial and cultural rivalries, of monopolies, restrictions, and exclusion, which were to play the serpent to this paradise, were little more than the amusements of his daily newspaper, and appeared to exercise almost no influence at all on the ordinary course of social and economic life, the internationalization of which was nearly complete in practice. It will assist us to appreciate the character and consequences of the peace which we have imposed on our enemies, if I elucidate a little further some of the chief unstable elements already present when war broke out in the economic life of Europe. Part 1. Population. In 1870, Germany had a population of about 40 million. By 1892, this figure had risen to 50 million, and by June 30, 1914, to about 68 million. In the years immediately preceding the war, the annual increase was about 850,000, of whom an insignificant proportion emigrated. This great increase was only rendered possible by a far-reaching transformation of the economic structure of the country. From being agricultural and mainly self-supporting, Germany transformed herself into a vast and complicated industrial machine, dependent for its working on the equipoise of many factors outside Germany as well as within. Only by operating this machine, continuously and at full blast, could she find occupation at home for her increasing population and the means of purchasing their subsistence from abroad. The German machine was like a top, which, to maintain its equilibrium, must spin ever faster and faster. In the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which grew from about 40 million in 1890 to at least 50 million at the outbreak of war, the same tendency was present in a less degree, the annual excess of births over deaths being about half a million, out of which, however, there was an annual emigration of some quarter of a million persons. To understand the present situation, we must apprehend with vividness what an extraordinary center of population the development of the Germanic system had enabled Central Europe to become. Before the war, the population of Germany and Austria-Hungary together not only substantially exceeded that of the United States, but was about equal to that of the whole of North America. In these numbers, situated within a compact territory, lay the military strength of the Central Powers. But these same numbers, for even the war has not appreciably diminished them, if deprived of the means of life, remains a hardly less danger to European order. European Russia increased her population in a degree even greater than Germany, from less than a hundred million in 1890 to about a hundred and fifty million at the outbreak of war. And in the year immediately preceding 1914, the excess of births over deaths in Russia as a whole was at the prodigious rate of two millions per annum. This inordinate growth in the population of Russia which has not been widely noticed in England, has been nevertheless one of the most significant facts of recent years. The great events of history are often due to secular changes in the growth of population and other fundamental economic causes, which, escaping by their gradual character, the notice of contemporary observers, are attributed to the follies of statesmen or the fanaticism of atheists. Thus the extraordinary occurrences of the past two years in Russia, that vast upheaval of society, which has overturned what seemed most stable, religion, the basis of property, the ownership of land, as well as forms of government and the hierarchy of classes, 
may owe more to the deep influences of expanding numbers than to lenin or to nicholas and the disruptive powers of excessive national fecundity may have played a greater part in bursting the bonds of convention than either the power of ideas or the errors of autocracy part two organization the delicate organization by which these peoples lived depended partly on factors internal to the system the interference of frontiers and of tariffs was reduced to a minimum and not far short of three hundred millions of people lived within the three empires of russia germany and austria-hungary the various currencies which were all maintained on a stable basis in relation to gold and to one another facilitated the easy flow of capital and of trade to an extent the full value of which we only realize now when we are deprived of its advantages over this great area there was an almost absolute security of property and of person these factors of order security and uniformity which europe had never before enjoyed over so wide and populous a territory or for so long a period prepared the way for the organization of that vast mechanism of transport coal distribution and foreign trade which made possible an industrial order of life in the dense urban centers of new population this is too well known to require detailed substantiation with figures but it may be illustrated by the figures for coal which has been the key to the industrial growth of central europe hardly less than of england the output of german coal grew from thirty million tons in eighteen seventy one to seventy million tons in eighteen ninety a hundred and ten million tons in nineteen hundred and a hundred and ninety million tons in nineteen thirteen round germany as a central support the rest of the european economic system grouped itself and on the prosperity and enterprise of germany the prosperity of the rest of the continent mainly depended the increasing pace of germany gave her neighbors an outlet for their products in exchange for which the enterprise of the german merchant supplied them with their chief requirements at a low price the statistics of the economic interdependence of germany and her neighbors are overwhelming germany was the best customer of russia norway holland belgium switzerland italy and austria-hungary she was the second best customer of great britain sweden and denmark and the third best customer of france she was the largest source of supply to russia norway sweden denmark holland switzerland italy austria-hungary romania and bulgaria and the second largest source of supply to great britain belgium and france in our own case we sent more exports to germany than to any other country in the world except india and we bought more from her than from any other country in the world except the united states there was no european country except those west of germany which did not do more than a quarter of their total trade with her and in the case of russia austria-hungary and holland the proportion was far greater germany not only furnished these countries with trade but in the case of some of them supplied a great part of the capital needed for their own development of germany's pre-war foreign investments amounting in all to about six billion two hundred and fifty million not far short of two point five billion was invested in russia austria-hungary bulgaria romania and turkey and by the system of peaceful penetration she gave these countries not only capital but what they needed hardly less organization the whole of europe east of the rhine thus fell into the german industrial orbit and its economic life was adjusted accordingly but these internal factors would not have been sufficient to enable the population to support itself without the cooperation of external factors also and of certain general dispositions common to the whole of europe many of the circumstances already treated were true of europe as a whole and were not peculiar to the central empires but all of what follows was common to the whole european system 
Part 3. The Psychology of Society Europe was so organized socially and economically as to secure the maximum accumulation of capital. While there were some continuous improvements in the daily conditions of life of the mass of the population, society was so framed as to throw a great part of the increased income into the control of the class least likely to consume it. The new rich of the 19th century were not brought up to large expenditures, and preferred the power which investment gave them to the pleasures of immediate consumption. In fact, it was precisely the inequality of the distribution of wealth which made possible those vast accumulations of fixed wealth and of capital improvements which distinguished that age from all others. Herein lay, in fact, the main justification of the capitalist system. If the rich had spent their new wealth on their own enjoyments, the world would long ago have found such a regime intolerable. But like bees they saved and accumulated, not less to the advantage of the whole community, because they themselves held narrower ends in prospect. The immense accumulations of fixed capital, which to the great benefit of mankind were built up during the half-century before the war, could never have come about in a society where wealth was divided equitably. The railways of the world, which that age built as a monument to posterity, were, not less than the pyramids of Egypt, the work of labor which was not free to consume in immediate enjoyment the full equivalent of its efforts. Thus this remarkable system depended for its growth on a double bluff or deception. On the one hand, the laboring classes accepted from ignorance or powerlessness or were compelled, persuaded, or cajoled by custom, convention, authority, and the well-established order of society into accepting a situation in which they could call their own very little of the cake that they and nature and the capitalists were cooperating to produce. And on the other hand, the capitalist classes were allowed to call the best part of the cake theirs and were theoretically free to consume it, on the tacit underlying condition that they consumed very little of it in practice. The duty of saving became nine-tenths of virtue, and the growth of the cake the object of true religion. There grew round the non-consumption of the cake all those instincts of Puritanism which in other ages has withdrawn itself from the world, and has neglected the arts of production as well as those of enjoyment. And so the cake increased. But to what end was not clearly contemplated? Individuals would be exhorted not so much to abstain as to defer, and to cultivate the pleasures of security and anticipation. Saving was for old age, or for your children. But this was only in theory. The virtue of the cake was that it was never to be consumed, neither by you, nor by your children after you. In writing thus, I do not necessarily disparage the practices of that generation. In the unconscious recesses of its being, society knew what it was about. The cake was really very small, in proportion to the appetites of consumption. And no one, if it were shared all round, would be much the better off by the cutting of it. Society was working not for the small pleasures of today, but for the future security and improvement of the race. In fact, for progress. If only the cake were not cut, but was allowed to grow in the geometrical proportion predicted by Malthus of population, but not less true of compound interest, perhaps a day might come when there would at last be enough to go around, and when posterity could enter into the enjoyment of our labors. In that day, overwork, overcrowding, and underfeeding would have come to an end, and men, secure of the comforts and necessities of the body, could proceed to the nobler exercises of their faculties. One geometrical ratio might cancel another, and the nineteenth century was able to forget the fertility of the species in a contemplation of the dizzy virtues of compound interest. There were two pitfalls in this prospect, 
lest population till outstripping accumulation our self-denials promote not happiness but numbers and lest the cake be after all consumed prematurely in war the consumer of all such hopes but these thoughts lead too far from my present purpose i seek only to point out that the principles of accumulation based on inequality was a vital part of the pre-war order of society and of progress as we then understood it and to emphasize that this principle depended on unstable psychological conditions which it may be impossible to recreate it was not natural for a population of whom so few enjoyed the comforts of life to accumulate so hugely the war has disclosed the possibility of consumption to all and the vanity of abstinence to many thus the bluff is discovered the laboring classes may be no longer willing to forgo so largely and the capitalist classes no longer confident of the future may seek to enjoy more fully their liberties of consumption so long as they last and thus precipitate the hour of their confiscation part four the relation of the old world to the new the accumulative habits of europe before the war were the necessary condition of the greatest of the external factors which maintained the european equipoise of the surplus capital goods accumulated by europe a substantial part was exported abroad where its investment made possible the development of the new resources of food materials and transport and at the same time enabled the old world to stake out a claim in the natural wealth and virgin potentialities of the new this last factor came to be of the vastest importance the old world employed with an immense prudence the annual tribute it was thus entitled to draw the benefit of cheap and abundant supplies resulting from the new developments which its surplus capital had made possible was it is true enjoyed and not postponed but the greater part of the money interest accruing on these foreign investments was reinvested and allowed to accumulate as a reserve it was then hoped against the less happy day when the industrial labor of europe could no longer purchase on such easy terms the produce of other continents and when the due balance would be threatened between its historical civilizations and the multiplying races of other climates and environments thus the whole of the european races tended to benefit alike from the development of new resources whether they pursued their culture at home or adventured it abroad even before the war however the equilibrium thus established between old civilizations and new resources was being threatened the prosperity of europe was based on the facts that owing to the large exportable surplus of foodstuffs in america she was able to purchase food at a cheap rate measured in terms of the labor required to produce her own exports and that as a result of her previous investments of capital she was entitled to a substantial amount annually without any payment in return at all the second of these factors then seemed out of danger but as a result of the growth of population overseas chiefly in the united states the first was not so secure when first the virgin soils of america came into bearing the proportions of the population of those continents themselves and consequently of their own local requirements to those of europe were very small as lately as eighteen ninety europe had a population three times that of north and south america added together but by nineteen fourteen the domestic requirements of the united states for wheat were approaching their production and the date was evidently near when there would be an exportable surplus only in years of exceptionally favorable harvest indeed the present domestic requirements of the united states are estimated at more than ninety per cent of the average yield of the five years nineteen o nine to nineteen thirteen at that time however the tendency towards stringency was showing itself not so much in a lack of abundance as in a steady increase of real cost 
That is to say, taking the world as a whole, there was no deficiency of wheat, but in order to call forth an adequate supply, it was necessary to offer a higher real price. The most favorable factor in the situation was to be found in the extent to which Central and Western Europe was being fed from the exportable surplus of Russia and Romania. In short, Europe's claim on the resources of the New World was becoming precarious. The law of diminishing returns was at last reasserting itself, and was making it necessary year by year for Europe to offer a greater quantity of other commodities to obtain the same amount of bread. And Europe, therefore, could by no means afford the disorganization of any of her principal sources of supply. Much else might be said in an attempt to portray the economic peculiarities of the Europe of 1914. I have selected for emphasis the three or four greatest factors of instability. The instability of an excessive population dependent for its livelihood on a complicated and artificial organization. The psychological instability of the laboring and capitalist classes and the instability of Europe's claim coupled with the completeness of her dependence on the food supplies of the New World. The war had so shaken this system as to endanger the life of Europe altogether. A great part of the continent was sick and dying. Its population was greatly in excess of the numbers for which a livelihood was available. Its organization was destroyed. Its transport system ruptured. And its food supplies terribly impaired. It was the task of the peace conference to honor engagements and to satisfy justice, but not less to re-establish life and to heal wounds. These tasks were dictated as much by prudence as by the magnanimity which the wisdom of antiquity approved in victors. We will examine in the following chapters the actual characters of the peace. End of chapter 2. Recording by Graham McMillan, San Diego, California.